Welcome to the Queer Arabs podcast. This is Alia. This is Nadia. And Ellie. And we have a guest on. I just want to give a huge shout out to Layla, who our, our friend and past guest who connected us. Um, so Yafa, can you introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Yafa. They, she pronouns. I'm a trans, queer, indigenous, displaced Palestinian. Also friends with Layla. Layla is wonderful. I'm uh, so excited to, to be here. Uh, I'm a multi-displaced person. Uh, grandparents displaced in 1948 and then parents displaced in 1967 and then displaced again in 1991 after the Gulf War. And I've lived in nine countries beyond that. Uh, wow. so I've kind of been going all around. Uh, I've, like most uh, people with different immigrant and refugee backgrounds, I've had like 17 different careers per year, basically. <laughs> Uh, so I currently am the executive director of the Muslim Alliance for Sexual and Gender Diversity, which is a queer and trans Muslim organization that supports queer and trans Muslim um, individuals around the world. And we define Muslim as uh, less of the religious belief system and more of the racialization uh, of Muslims. And so we work with, uh, for example, minority uh, Christian communities and Jewish communities and other uh, religious minorities as well. I'm also a writer uh, and recently published a poetry book specifically talking about the queer and trans Palestinian experience in displacement um, and in particular uh, specifically talking about the ongoing genocide that's currently happening. Thank you. Um, how did you and Layla first connect? Just I know I know she does a lot of work. Like which avenue did you connect through? Yeah, so we connected in the most Palestinian way uh, through Dufke, <laughs> uh in oh, nice. the Bay Area. Yeah, in the Bay Area, there's a Dufke uh, troop called uh, Al-Jusur, uh, and they perform in all kinds of uh, spaces and specifically highlight that Dufke is a form of Palestinian resistance. Uh, and every once in a while, we'll do workshops, and so I joined a workshop. Uh, several months ago, I think it was like seven or eight months ago now, and Leila was was there uh, helping me figure out which is my right foot and which is my left, and then eventually ended up joining the troop, and so now I get to see Leila all the time. That's oh, awesome. Good. That sounds yeah. like fun. Yeah, that group sounds incredible. Um, Leila came on the podcast uh, not long ago and talked about just uh, how how much of a um, activist group that dance troupe also is, which is really great. Ed, do you want to start talking about um, your book and even start just like with the title and how you thought of that and what the the symbolism is there? Yeah, absolutely. So, Blood Orange happened about a week after October seventh. Uh, so around October thirteenth. I was kind of trying to figure out what is it that I want to be doing in this moment in time? How do I want to, in particular, center queer and trans Palestinians and our experiences and kind of get a conversation started that I knew was not going to be centered in the vast majority of spaces. And even now, 90 days into this, uh, queer and trans Palestinians are still uh, not centered in any way, shape or form. And so I decided to write a poetry book and publish it. Uh, again, center our voices and also at the same time uh, raise funds for queer and trans Palestinians on the ground that I knew would would be in need of financial support and they may not always be receiving it. Uh, and yeah, so I wrote the vast majority of the poems between October 13th and the 15th. About 28 out of the 32 poems were written then. That's so fast. <laughs> Yeah, it, it came together really quick. Uh, writing has always been my way of processing things. And usually when things are really bad is when I can write quite a lot. Uh, and so I think it was just really speaking to the moment and everything that so many during during those days. And uh, also with, with it being a close weekend, I was out in the desert to watch the eclipse uh, and like almost like the calm before everything fell apart. Uh, and so had the time and space that weekend uh, to really just dedicate to to processing things, to putting it out. And I will say I've usually it's been really hard to write about Palestine. That's usually one topic I couldn't write about before October 7th. Uh, but I feel like it was just 31 years of pent up tension and 
desire and need to talk about Philistine, and it all just came out. Uh, and so, yeah, the vast majority of it happened literally within a weekend. So it's incredible. Um, I haven't had a chance to read the entire book. I've read a few of the poems, um, and I can't read, wait to read the rest. Um, I know we talked before the recording about you potentially sharing one of the poems. Would you be up for doing that right now? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll read actually the first poem in the collection called The Diaspora. Being in the diaspora is having genocide at your door and you're not home to greet it. Being in the diaspora is wondering which cut from your paycheck killed your cousin. Being in the diaspora is being told you are not from anywhere while they kill you everywhere. Being in the diaspora is being murdered without ever bleeding. Thank you. Um, did you, so the part about the cut from your paycheck, killing your cousin, that just, yeah, yeah that, that hits so that hit. hard. When, when I, when I read that, that has stayed in my mind. Um, mm. Yeah. yeah, I was just reading, uh, I actually read um, through all the poems uh, right before this recording. Um, and I think something that stood out to me throughout it, that was especially in that line about the, the paycheck, um, killing your family members, um, the how much cognitive dissonance there is um, involved in, in diaspora. Um, and the I think there's one where you talk about um, like we're not supposed to be okay in a genocide. Like you're, you're, we're not supposed to be healthy. We're supposed to be a mess. And then a few poems later, you talk about healing work and all those contradictions of um, kind of being like, I, I don't, I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to be doing here. Or if anything I could do really makes sense. Yeah, and thank you for for mentioning that. That so that first. The, the poem that, that you're referencing, uh, it's called Healthy. That was actually the very first poem I wrote for this collection. And it was specifically of everybody around me. What we're thinking that they're doing it wrong, right? Because they were being severely impacted and people would be like, you know, I'm crying all the time and I can't look away from my phone and all of that. And just this, the level of gaslighting that we interact with of even like the broader mental health system constantly telling us that we are wrong, that everything that we're doing is unhealthy, that our response is wrong. And when in reality, like if after October 7th, if you were crying all the time, that's healthy. Like you're not supposed to be okay with genocide and watching genocide as if it's normal. All of these systems are constantly telling us that there's something wrong with us mm -hmm. for honoring anything along the way. It's like, but that's the unhealthy response. Us pretending as if it's just a Sunday or a Monday or a Tuesday, as if everything is normal in the world, as if everything is fine, that's the unhealthy response. But that's not what you'll hear anywhere else, right? Even with a lot of mental health workers and things like that. And mental health is a world I'm constantly a part of, and I do a lot of specifically peer support work. It oftentimes the conversation just becomes, how do you alleviate everything, right? How do you eliminate the crying? How do you eliminate the not being able to go to work on a Monday versus actually, wait, why should anyone go to work on a Monday when there's literally multiple genocides happening at the same time right in front of us? Like we see all of it. That to me is the unhealthy response is just to expect us to continue operating as if everything is fine. But again, most practices will be like, okay, let's focus on self-care and how we can get you to feel better. But it's like, we're not supposed to feel better during a genocide. That's not the point of genocide. Like that's not how that works. Um, and so that was the very first poem that I wrote as part of this collection. As a, as a part of that, because at the time I was leading a lot of different just com community spaces for people most impacted by genocide, both in person and virtually. 
And it was the same thing again and again of everyone being like, how do I fix this? How do I fix me? How do I fix how I'm feeling? It's like, no, no. <laughs> well, that's, that's not the point. But we've been told day in and day out that that is always the point and that we have failed because we haven't fixed it. When in reality, not a single one of us can go and fix genocide today. Right? The emotions that we experience are valid. The way that we're interacting with, with this, when we shouldn't know how to interact with genocide, is valid. And I wish more people heard, hear more of that. That's such a, such an amazing, like just, it's amazing. I like bad amazing to me when people just really focus on the compartmentally, like compartmentalizing their emotions and their feelings even in the worst possible context and um i'm glad you brought this up um wow i've i don't know i've seen people like make comments on social media saying that they're filtering out certain words because they can't like palestine i don't know if it's palestine or if it's war or whatever and filtering out certain words on social media to I mean, kind of uh, avoid it, but I don't know. It's I mean, during the like height of the Trump years, I was, I was doing it myself just because I couldn't, I, I could not function if I heard about the next, uh, next talking point on what they want to do to immigrants or what they want to do to people in, in the, uh, in the whole immigration process. It's just. It's just like, you know, some of like some of it's relevant. Some of it is going to become law. Some of it is just them seeing what they can get away with and what floats. But it's also just a constant barrage, especially with social media. And yeah, therapy is basically like, how do we function with this constant barrage of people, you know, telling us about our own destruction and then being asked to willingly participate in it? And I'm just like can't I, I can't deal with that i got bills to pay you know yeah i saw i don't remember too like seeing someone who is a zionist like post about how so many so many people are um need to stay in their lane and they don't know about you know the the subject of uh i don't remember exactly how it was but it's like we're all involuntarily literally paying to be able to at least have a fucking opinion and to have to ask questions and like people trying to shut down those conversations shut down people's feelings to the point where then people are looking at themselves and internalizing that in some way and thinking oh i need to feel less or i need to like you know have a certain part of the day for this this long where i can feel my feelings um when there's a literal genocide that we're all paying for i'm not speaking eloquently but i guess like how, how are you going to talk eloquently about any of this well i think maybe we can um Yafa, maybe we could bring it back to what you do do in mental health and the peer support work you do, because I think uh, something a lot of us are struggling with is like, what's an alternative to this like hyper individualist compartmentalize your feelings, don't spill them anywhere uh, mindset, um, and just kind of looking for what what are other ways uh, that mental health and healing can be approached that's not that? Yeah, that's a great question. And the simple answer is there's like a million different other alternatives. And I will say, so I'm a certified peer support specialist and I actually over the last few years have not been doing as much one-on-one -on -one work because I certify people as peer support specialists. And also at the same time, I'm also a death doula and a birthing doula. I'm a yin yoga teacher. And my practice, 
I kind of try to merge all those different things together. And it's always interesting to me of like so much of it is also just founded on a foundation of my Palestinian heritage and who I am as a Palestinian and like what I was raised with. Uh, and so when I think of something like this, it's not even just peer support work or even just yoga. How do we just redefine a lot of these concepts that we're taught are standard, right? And that they're always going to be there. And like one thing that comes up for me, um, as, uh, that came up for me as you all were, were sharing, and this text coming up early on in October, is how do we move away from a capitalistic understanding of rest? And over the last few years, in the as we have been talking about rest and trying to center that as resistance, which is which is really beautiful, and not even just over the last few years, right? But even Audre Lorde was talking about rest as resistance and how radical that is. But in a lot of spaces, our idea of rest, our idea of healing, is incredibly capitalistic in the sense of it's always within this model of we're going to go and be able to produce more because we have had rest. And if you think of your typical workforce and workspace, right, you have this idea of you're at work 40 hours a week or however many hours you're there, right? You're going to get burned out. Basically, you're going to hate yourself. You're going to hate your job. You're going to hate everything, which is all part of capitalism. But then you have vacation time, which is where you get to with entirely from your workspace, and that should be enough. So if you do that for two weeks a year, you should be good to go. And all of that is just incredibly capitalistic. And over the last few years, I've noticed a lot of even radical spaces will utilize almost the same models of that rest means separating from what's actually happening. And I feel like for me, both from a yin yoga standpoint and also from um, just like my, the way I would see my parents and my grandparents interact with things. And we've always had a culture of there is, you could fix things, right? You could run away from things, or you could also just sit with things. And you're just in that thing and you're not trying to fix it. It's just there because you know you're not going to fix it, right? And yin yoga is very much similar of how do you dive deeper into things instead of avoiding them or trying to solve them. So there's no actual action. You're just there. You're allowing it to happen. You're, you're in the midst of it. And it's actually through that that you get deeper and deeper and deeper into things. And birthing work and death work and, and peer support are all very similar where they're not about solving things, right? It's about how do we just be with one another? How do we be together? Birthing might have a little bit more solution-oriented things because someone's actively giving birth and so you actually want to do something. But with like death work, for example, like the thing that most people are afraid of within helping professions, which is that your patients are going to die, is always going to happen with death work, right? That, that's the destination. That's actually where you're heading towards. And so I kind of bring all of those things together into my definition of rest of that rest isn't how do we avoid a situation, how do we run away from it, but how do we sit within it without having to solve it today? And, uh, and it's the same way within, again, like the peer support practice or the death work practice, where when I'm working with someone one-on-one -on -one as a peer support specialist, um, it, we're not there to solve things. It's not a matter of within an hour, you should be better, right? Whatever better is, you should have less problems. You should have solutions. You should have this or that. It's literally, how do we just share space? How do we be together in a space similar to this, right? Where you could go so incredibly deep into these topics, but because none of us are trying to solve any of it, we actually feel rejuvenated by the end of it becomes a restful space. And so I wholeheartedly understand where people come from in terms of like really wanting to separate from certain things. And I've definitely had that along the way, right? Of um, like you had mentioned around like the Trump era of like literally right after Trump was elected, I called my manager and I was like, I'm not coming back to the US like for a few months. Like I'm just not doing it. 
And, and there's definitely space for that. Um, and also, though, you know, especially when we're thinking of genocide and some of the larger, uh, or not necessarily larger, but the everyday survival challenges that people might be experiencing, we don't necessarily, like, have time, space, privilege to take a step back, right? And I feel like that's the case for so many Palestinians right now of we can't just turn off our phones and disappear to a spa for a week because like our families are dying, our people are dying. We, we need to actually see it. Um, but for me, like that definition of rest is, okay, we can actually see it, but we can do it within community in different ways where we're holding each other and we're, we're feeling that those layers of support, um, you know, versus trying to fix it or trying to run away from it. And so, um, about a month ago, uh, the organization I run, we launched a free one-on-one -on -one peer support program for people most impacted by the genocides. Uh, so it's open to, to, to anyone. It doesn't have to be Palestinians, but most of the people I'm working with right now are Palestinians. You know, we, we start the call and it's predominantly trans-Palestinians. Everyone is a queer trans-Palestinian. Yeah, or other things. Everyone's queer or trans. <laughs> they don't have to be Palestinian. But we start the call with people talking about how they were just harassed, right, or have lost their family members, or will literally be on call with people crying and wailing and all the things, but we sit with it. We're just there, right? My job isn't to go and be like, I need you to stop crying so that we can solve, because there is no solving this. You know, when, when I'm working with someone who's lost 200 family members, which I relate to, I've lost over 150 family members from my mom's side and then others from my dad's side. But when, when you're in that space, there is no fixing it. There, there's nothing that's going to bring back 200 family members. There's nothing that's going to prevent any of the other family members from dying in that moment in time, right? There's nothing that we can do but just sitting within it. And every single time, people feel so much better after because that's really all we need, right? There is no fixing this in this moment in time as an individual, right? Collectively, we can go and we organize and we show up and we disrupt and we build and we will fix this, right? Like we will have a free Palestine, but in a single hour long session, I'm not going to go and fix settler colonialism. Like we're not going to get rid of settler colonialism and pretending as if we can is so harmful to people. Um, and so I try bringing all of that together uh, and just share space with people. And it's amazing how, how much we just need that. And same with the group spaces that we run at Meshid. Um, usually they're scheduled for an hour, but every single one we continued on for three hours because you also can't time this. This isn't, this isn't a time-limited thing. People will move through emotions in the ways that they need to, um, which is just always really beautiful. Uh, so I want to invite people to, to, to consider that and think of that. How do you just sit within things versus trying to solve things or running away from things? And I feel like if more people were comfortable with that, uh, we, we wouldn't be having a ton of conversations about people losing, like no longer paying attention uh, with everything happening, because we know that's also happening. We know people from the very beginning couldn't look at things. And it's not about looking at things, but it's about how do we witness in ways that are going to become transformative, but also recognizing of active witnessing is a gift on its own. And we can sit within that and then we can go and do things but we can just sit with it together, ideally. Yeah, well. It is always wonderful to have a space where you're with your people and you can you don't have to explain everything. I know this is kind of almost a cliche or a bingo spot on the Queer Arabs um, episode board at this point. But yeah, I'm just, so, I'm just so glad to be in a space where you don't have to explain or where like everyone hurts the same and they can feel it. And it's freeing, you know? in a way yeah this this question might come out messy i'm trying to formulate it well but um so your work as a as a death doula must be in some way always and right now touched 
by how close you unfortunately are to the genocide and how many family members you've lost and who's who have been robbed of their lives um so i don't know if you can speak to like how being close to death in that way or having death close to you in that way in such an unjust way has affected your work as a death doula is that something you could speak to yeah i will say so part of the reason i ended up in death work is just because i've always been surrounded by death right and i think a lot of palestinians a lot of just marginalized groups of people can really relate to that experience of we've always known death very intimately and not because close family members just died of natural causes, but because of the massacres and the ongoing genocides. And even if we weren't thinking of our own people's genocide, but we're so interconnected with so many other groups of people that we feel the Armenian genocide, we feel the Sudanese genocide, we feel the Kashmiri genocide, we feel all of these different things. And so my entire life, I've been very intimately connected with that. And I think as I was growing older, and especially as I got into more of understanding my disabilities, uh, so I'm autistic and, uh, and have some physical disabilities at different times. I have all kinds of mental health diagnoses. As I was kind of thinking of all of that in late teen years, early 20s, it was really a space to kind of think of how these things that just exist that are so natural such as death or disability are weaponized against us and how because of that at times it moves us away from the entire thing and i will share that i was really fortunate to be a part of a family where when it came to natural death it was always just revered it was always just a rite of passage it was always just a constant it, like I, I've shared this a few times in a few places of every single one of my grandparents between like one to two years before they die, they at one point will just be like, I'm ready to go. And it's beautiful to have witnessed that so many times where no one fights them, right? No one is like, oh, but you're so young, live to 117. You have to do this for us. You have to be here. And it was just like, okay, like, what do you want to do before that, right? And, and so witnessing that, but also witnessing our people being killed again and again and again, and how for so many people like that, like the injustice and death itself become so interconnected and so interlinked that death is always violent. Uh, and so I think as I was getting into a place to understand my, my own like disability practices and disability justice, I'm really separating those things. And as I started working with people, it was, it was less of like, I went and got trained in death work and then I started working with people. It was actually through more of the peer support work that I was doing. And when I first started as a peer support specialist about 10 years ago, um, just by accident started working with trans um, Muslim unaccompanied minor refugees from Syria uh, mm -hmm. in, in Massachusetts. And when I say by accident, I mean, like, I literally went to an event that I was invited to. And the person who had invited me really wanted me to meet this unaccompanied trans minor who had come over from Syria, and they were there with their white social worker. And this white social worker refused to allow us to talk. And she would just glare at me the entire time, like literally from across the room. And there were a bunch of queer Muslims at this space, because it was a queer Muslim event and refused to let this person talk to any of us. And that was a little bit of a wake up call of like, of who's working with unaccompanied trans minors from Syria? Who's working with trans Muslims from all around the world, right? And the necessity of, of like, or the realization of no one else is going to do that for us. And so I ended up saying, just doing that work and started working with for those couple of years, probably over a couple dozen 
unaccompanied minors, um, right, or somewhere early adult, uh, like young adults. Um, but, but, the, but that was how I got into death work because the individuals who were coming in from, from Syria and I had lived on like the border between Syria and Jordan when the Syrian revolution started. So I was very familiar with like the bombings and things like that, right, of actually witnessing it. But it's very different when a person comes in after they've lost their entire family. And so most of that work was around death. Most of it was grief support or most of it was understanding your own death process, right? For people who are 16 and 17, and I think the youngest was 14 maybe or 15, but doing that work was what led me to eventually be like, actually like, let me center this. Let me do death work in particular. And, and that's how I got into birthing work and, and all of that. Um, but nowadays with everything happening with the genocide, uh, a lot of the conversations I've been trying to have is really how do we heal to a place where we're able to separate injustice and death? Because right now we look at those numbers, we look at everything happening in Gaza and in the West Bank and everywhere else around the world, and we see 30,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza alone. We see this enormous number, and oftentimes we'll focus on that the sad part is that people died. But the sad part is that settler colonialism exists and that genocide is a reality and that people are killed but it's not that they died. People are always going to die. We're all going to die. That's a beautiful part of life. And so nowadays, a lot of my work is how do we separate those two things? Because what inadvertently happens to a lot of people is because we're connecting injustice with dying, all of a sudden, so many of us begin carrying just so much pain, right? And almost like resentment and heartbreak and all of these things around our own dying process. And so then we end up in communities where everyone is terrified of dying because dying is injustice in that regard. But dying is just a beautiful rite of passage. Dying just is. And right now I'm supporting a few different people who are going through their own dying process and witnessing the difference between how, like before October 7th, it was so much easier for people to, I mean, it's always hard to watch people die. Right? But especially right now for Palestinians, to be witnessing, to watch 30,000 people die in Gaza, right? But then to, to watch a potentially like a Palestinian in their 80s dying of natural causes and the conflation of the two, of that they're both the same, of almost as if that person who's in their mid-80s, who's dying of natural cause, is being killed also in the same way that all these children are. But they're two very different things. And when we hold on to that, when we just conflate them, it, does, it prevents us from just being with that 84-year-old, that 85-year-old in those moments and actually sharing beauty, right? And sharing that little bit of life that's left and centering them and celebrating them and all the things that they actually want to do because it becomes as if we're watching something being bombed. And I've definitely seen that these last three months when I've worked with people. And these last three months, I've only been working with Palestinians in particular because of this. Um, and so that's been kind of the focus of, of my work of like being that constant source of reminder of like, but this is different, right? This isn't sad in that same way. It's still sad, but it's not the same, right? Of like there's beauty in it and working with people so that they're able to actually share space with one another instead of running away from it, right? Because again, back to what we were talking about earlier of we're taught that we have to separate. And so the amount of conversations that I've had where it's just talking to people about seeing other people and they're like, I physically cannot get out of bed to go and see my mom, right? Or my grandmother mm -hmm. or my partner even in one case. And, and having that conversation and, being in that shared space with people and then a few hours later they are able to go and show up for that and it's not like we're fixing anything but just allowing all of those emotions to sit there but recognizing that 
it is different. Death itself is not bad. Death is just death. What's happening right now, the problem with it isn't that people are dying. It's that it's a severe injustice that should never exist. That's what we're trying to prevent. It's not we're trying to prevent all Palestinians from ever dying. Every Palestinian will also die. We're all going to die. It's that this needs to go, right? The bombing needs to stop, right? The apartheid needs to stop. The injustice on the ground needs to stop. The injustice everywhere needs to stop. Settler colonialism needs to go because it creates all of these systems. And these are all just tools of settler colonialism that are going to continue being used unless we address that. That was beautifully said. It was. It's such a such a good point how um, death itself is not the worst possible thing that can happen. It's a beautiful thing. It's when you attach, when someone forces trauma in connection with the death is when it's a terrible thing. And I, I had never thought of this, this piece that you said about um, people being killed when they're younger, uh, that has a ripple effect and affects the people dying from natural causes when that should be a beautiful rite of passage. But um, the unjust killings are coloring all of these other experiences for any Palestinian dying, even if it is at the time that one would naturally die. So thank you for bringing that up. Thank you for asking the question. That was a beautiful question. Um, This is a little bit of a shift, uh, but um, you mentioned something at the beginning of this when you were talking about your work with Masjid um, about defining Muslim community through racialization uh, rather than through faith, um, which I think might be a different way of thinking about it than a lot of people automatically would. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what's kind of the thought process behind that and how that affects the work you do? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's no, like, over the last... 10 or so years since Meshed has been there. Meshed was founded in 2011, and so actually it was like turning 13 this year. There has not been a time since 2011 that is most representative of that and clearly shows it than like the last three months. So in the last three months, that broad definition has allowed me, for example, to be working with uh, with queer and trans, uh, Muslim Palestinians, Christian Palestinians, and Jewish Palestinians in particular, and then as well as like different religious minority, like Armenians, and just different, different people around the world. And when we think of like the last three months, if you think of like the Christian Palestinian experience, if a Christian Palestinian wanted to go to just any LGBTQ service out there, chances are like they're not going to understand 99% of that experience. Whereas even like like me being a Muslim, for example, as a queer and trans Palestinian Muslim, I will understand 99% of that experience. And and so we're able to work with people who are are not Muslim in, in those ways, but that proximity is makes us so much closer than like for example a white christian and like what's known as the united states like christian palestinians and muslim palestinians have way more in common than like christian palestinians and white uh christians out here or wherever in in different places um and so we've always had that as like part of the space and that shit is the type of space where no one's going to ask you to justify why you're there or be like tell us how muslim you are or what level of muslim are you or anything like that because we also understand how one racialization has worked where a lot of people are perceived as muslim and so they're also harmed by like the war on terror um back in the day and then now very impacted by everything going on despite not being palestinian potentially not being muslim at all um 
and we've seen that with like the Sikh community in like India, for example, where uh, they'll just be racialized as Muslim. Uh, and so we've always kind of had that really broad uh, definition of, uh, of what it means to, to be a part of our space. Uh, and, and don't, we don't like try to censor it or anything like that. It's just, um, or we don't, we, I mean, we're very abolitionist. And so we don't try to police our spaces as like justify who you are to be here, um, which has really allowed us to be a space that has, and not even just different religious minorities, but even like different sects within religious minorities. Uh, and just be a space where people can just be in in the ways that we're experiencing the world versus the way that we're told we have to experience the world. Uh, and and right now, I will say of like in a lot of our spaces and things like that, this is probably the, the highest percentage of non-Muslims that we work with. Um, and I say that very loosely, specifically because again, we don't ask people like, tell us about your background, tell us who you are, tell us who you're not, tell us all of this. And I only know that more from like the people I work with on a one-to-one -one level or in the group spaces that I facilitated, if it comes up, right, if people bring it forward. Um, but we're just conscious that this is something that's needed for all people instead of this is only going to be relevant to, um, to queer and trans Muslims. And, within this moment of just like Muslim Palestinians, because um, it's, it's really not, like the Palestinian experience exists beyond that. Uh, and so if we're doing work to support queer and trans Palestinians, um, for us it's important to make sure that, that that's inclusive of all queer and trans Palestinians, because unfortunately there are many places that queer and trans Palestinians have access to or that are safe for us to, to interact with, especially now. Yeah. I think exclusion is super cool just because like I feel like in a lot of services especially in the country that is the United States it's very a lot of these minority outreach are like well you're not our what our particular focus is on and you're like but I have the same need and they're like well you're not our target group so we can't help you which has always struck me as like a really weird and you know damaging thing especially when somebody is basically gatekeeping care or you know information like that sorry that was funny ellie you got cut off right at the beginning so it sounded like you like you said exclusion is really cool <laughs> but i knew that's not what you were saying so i mean the funny part is i was like i agree with you exclusion can be really cool <laughs> yeah it actually can be <laughs> i mean there's some people who do want to exclude. So, yeah, everyone, Ellie, didn't well, say exclusion is cool, but, it, like, it actually can be, so. Anyway, so, as I was saying, exclusion is not cool, but, on the other hand, it can be, especially when you need to protect spaces, but it's, it's kind of one of those things you have to be really careful with, too. And it yeah. gets super messy yeah. once organizations start to scale up beyond just a few individuals. And it's like, now we have to write an employee handbook or some or a volunteer handbook. And and that sort of delegation gets messy because, like, you person's like, wait, am I doing this right? Or mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we, we were mentioning this um, in the last episode um, about, like, policing identity in communities of how it's kind of inorganic to how people naturally hanging out do things. Like oftentimes in regular life, people form communities that are somewhat centered around an identity, but there's not like, I don't know, uh, uh, terms and conditions of who may apply. It's just kind of like there may be a few people who don't totally fit the bill of how you might generally describe the group and nobody cares. But um, I think it just gets a lot harder when things become like, a nonprofit with grants and a mission statement, et cetera. Uh, but I think it's, 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 I think it's important to stay true to that um, kind of organic flexibility of how people I think are made to form communities. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say uh, like even within nonprofits and more like organized structures that we're taught is like, always evil and nonprofit industrial complex is definitely evil. 
and also though if from my, like because this is a lot of the work that i've been doing over the last decade or so is how do you how do you do this type of work right in the ways that we're talking about it and for me so much of my work has been less identity focused and more of just marginalization focused so it's always working with like the most marginalized of the most marginalized which is where like with meshed we're able to keep that definition as broad as possible um and and there are so many things that you could do where like people are so terrified of like someone joining the space that's not supposed to be there and things like that. And also at the same time, you know, when spaces are run by the community and for the community, the community is who will show up, uh, right? So if I'm like, if I'm running a space and people are not comfortable with Palestinians, they're not going to join, uh, right? Or they're transphobic, they're not gonna join and, and things like that. And so, um, so I will say, like with Meshed, for example, with with like those funding structures, like Meshed receives. Um, so over the last twelve months, I've been working to get Meshed to a place where uh, it's able to like uh, to be uh, to sustain itself, uh, and then uh, was going to hire a full time executive director instead of me. Um, but with the elections coming up next year, there's so much that we're trying to build right now that um, that it made sense for me to stay on for another year. Um, but so we, we receive probably a dozen different grants and Meshed is, a, is, is getting to a place now where we're a pretty well resourced organization. And also we do not have a single grant that's outcome dependent. And so we don't accept money from funders that are telling us, this is how you need to do this. And it has to be this and it has to be that. It's, we've built it all in a way where it's all so flexible to the point of we can go and shift every single thing that Meshed does and stands for, and we would not lose our money today. But we don't need to do that because we've just been doing what the community wants and like as community members ourselves. Um, but so there's, there's so many ways to do it. And I find that oftentimes it's like an either or conversation of like either we have to be like volunteer run and really inadequately resourced. Or if we become resourced, then basically we have to accept board money. It's like, actually, there's like ways to become a half a million dollar org or even a million dollar org, which sounds really evil in my head. <laughs> and it, it can be really evil. It's so easy for it to be evil and it usually is evil, but there's ways to make it not evil. <laughs> um, and so uh, I'll, I'm always like excited about those types of conversations because I'm also like, yeah, actually we should get people equitably paid. Like our communities need those resources and we need all of those things, but also how do we do it in a way where uh, those strings that, um, that are often associated with things like nonprofits and, and other forms of orgs, how do we make sure that, that we don't fall into those traps because so many places will fall into those traps. But that's part of why Meshed is able to be um, really transient in a lot of ways, right? Where um, if, for example, let's say in like a year, all of a sudden Muslims are no longer marginalized in the ways that they are, then maybe the focus completely shifts, right? Maybe the name even shifts, but we don't have to worry about our funding shifting because it's already built into that. Um, and same with right now, with everything happening in Palestine, in Armenia, in Sudan, um, we're one of the few orgs that's able to work with all the people, right? And uh, like I'm working with, with people in Kashmir, right? Working with people um, who've been displaced from like Ethiopia, right? From all the different places that unfortunately, and there's unfortunately so many of them who have had to experience, who have experienced genocide over the years or are currently experiencing it. Um, but because of how loose our definitions are, we're able to, to actually just work with the people who need it the most. And that's also the case for like the financial support that we're doing right now, where we're organizing some direct financial support for people. Um, so if, if anyone's being impacted by the genocide, definitely feel free to reach out to me. Um, and then also helping uh, get money on the ground in Palestine. And that I will say is the only restrictive money that's, that's going out because so all the money from Blood Orange goes to queer and trans Palestinians in Palestine. And so that's the only bucket of money that I can't like send to Sudan or Armenia 
I can send it to like um, folks kind of like my family who are originally from Sudan, um, but are in Palestine. I can send it to like Palestinian Armenians and things like that in Palestine. But just because I said that that's going to queer and trans Palestinians, that's the only restrictive fund, but everything else is constantly shifting because the needs are constantly shifting and who needs things most and that marginalization is constantly shifting. Thanks for explaining that. Um, I'm currently trying to, I work in the arts and we're like trying to get arts nonprofits to be a little bit less evil in um, where their funding is coming from and what strings are attached to that. And um, I think a lot of people, they look at the situation and they immediately give up um, because of the thing you mentioned of this all or nothing attitude of, well, all money is dirty, the nonprofit industrial complex, it's inherently it's inherently bad, so why even try to make it a little less bad? Um, but but really, there's so many gradients, um, and not all funding is the same. Um, so, yeah, there, there there's a lot of room to improve within that system. So thanks for articulating that. Yeah, I appreciate you, and always happy to support if y'all need any support with any of that work that you mentioned. Yeah, thank you. Well, so can we? Oh, no, actually, I was going to be like, so can we talk about watermelons now and how what a symbol they become? Too, actually, I was going to ask about. Yes. That. <laughs> yeah. Now that so we, yeah. for yeah, for context for everyone, Yafa's wearing amazing watermelon earrings. Um, do you have any other watermelon items that you like to wear? Honestly, all the watermelon things I have are just earrings, but I have like five nice. different like watermelon earrings. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. Yeah, I um, hadn't even yeah. thought of gotten earrings that are watermelons like what a, yeah for for context for anyone who's completely out of the loop here watermelons have been com become associated with palestine and palestinian resistance to the point it's become like a symbol in some places it's the closest to the palestinian flag colors and it was a way kind of to to be like fuck you to meta be like well, okay you're not but i think also government censorship originally yeah yeah mm -hmm. okay i Oh, okay. I had heard of it as like associated with Meta trying to silence people, um, and people were like, "Fine, we'll use the watermelon emoji." Oh man, this is how I get how I get banned from whatever social media now. I'm just gonna be posting watermelon emojis, <laughs> but now watermelons on all the things forever because they're tasty. Totally. <laughs> yes, yeah, watermelons are. are also just wonderful. They just taste amazing. And, and they show up in so much fruits. fine art for some reason. As they should. Um, yeah, I love I love all of that. Um, although I did get a, a random comment at some point. This was when like, this was maybe a month ago. I was being slightly doxxed. And um, this like Zionist person tried to use the watermelon as like their thing. And I was like, really? Like, even the watermelon? Like... And, and I mean, they've taken all the things, right? Like even the slogans, like from the reverse of the sea and things like that. But it was just one person who tried to steal the watermelon. I'm so glad that that has not stuck. They took the hummus. Because, like, they can't have the watermelon. Like, yeah. yeah. I want to assign the worst fruit to Zionism. Like what's, what's a fruit that sucks? The worst fruits. Um, honeydew is... I mean, honeydew can be really good. Dare you? I feel like that's kind of not not exciting. I think that's like hard because different fruit like have such social or like cultural significance to different groups of people. So even thinking of like like the fruit that came to mind, it, like is like durian, which is the one that smells really really oh, bad. Yeah. yeah. But like, but, but it tastes also good. Durian, but it tastes good, right? But it's but durian is also like incredibly revered in like in like Malaysia and Indonesia and Thailand. Thailand. Yeah, and, true. Um, and so it's 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 hard to think of something of like what is the fruit that everybody hates or everyone should hate. Um, yeah, how about Zionists like just get none? Yeah, let's just say Zionists <laughs> Zionists just don't get any fruit. Artificial grapes. Let's go with that. Yeah, dare artificial. you on artificial grape? I was just gonna like say, you know, flavor. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, don't worry; they'll appropriate it soon enough. Yeah, I was going to say earlier that um, 
I think this also kind of brings us back to the to the second part of the very first question that I did not answer in terms of like the relevance of, of like the title of Blood Orange and like where that came from. Mm-hmm. Um, so for, for, for folks who don't know, um, Yaffa is known for, so Yaffa is where my dad's side of the family is from. My mom's side of the family is from Janine, uh, which is like the resistance capital of Palestine. And then, uh, but Yaffa has always been known for their oranges. Uh, and the Yaffa oranges are one of the very first things that the British appropriated and then Zionists appropriated it afterwards. And so to this day, like if you go to England, you get Yaffa cakes and they're like such a huge staple in literally every single supermarket and none of them know that Yaffa oranges are Palestinian. And so I wanted to really like reference like home in that way. And then, um, and then the blood is for obvious reasons of just the cycles of genocide that we've experienced um, over the years, first by the, the British and then Zionists just this last hundred years. And, uh, and that's where blood orange came from. Wow, I love that. I love that you're kind of, you're in addition to the obvious meanings, you're like, you're like, bitch that thing that you love so much. Do you know where it comes from? All right, so are we ready to wrap this? Are we, have we covered everything? Yeah, 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 but it's, but it's it's too soon. So yeah, Yafa, thank (laughs) you so much for talking with us. Um, Where can they reach you and find your materials and work? Yeah, so the best place right now, even though I'm incredibly shadow banned, is um, on Instagram and TikTok, um, Yafa's Utopia, just my name and then Utopia. Uh, And then I also uh, launched a queer and trans uh, Muslim publishing house called Madaj Publishing. So you can sign up for the newsletter through that. And then you can follow Meshid on Instagram and sign up for our newsletter because again, shadow banning is so real. So just uh, the word the and then masgd.org. Uh, and that's also the Instagram handle for Masjid as well. And that will give you access to all the events that we're hosting. And also we'll give you information about the new Queer and Trans Muslim Health Line that we're launching in March. Oh, hey, Alia. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. Hey, Alia. Don't we have like a website where people could find all these links in one convenient place? Yeah, um, you can go to thequeerarabs.com and we'll post all of the referenced, um, you know, links and all that stuff um, on there. And you can email us at thequeerarabs at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I don't know if we've been shadow banned yet. I'm surprised if we haven't. I mean, how would we know? But, you know, it's kind of obvious when things get really quiet. I don't and think we, we we are very much right now. I think it's because we haven't been on that account as much, but that's also fair. Yeah, put a few of our protests, like attending protest videos, in our feed, but maybe Meta isn't smart enough. Yeah, they haven't trained their AI mm-hmm. to watch videos yet. Yeah, <laughs> you may be like on the lower end of that spectrum of shadow banning because it's a full spectrum on learning. Of like it's. It's amazing how um, complex they've made it. So it's not even just like you're fully shadow banned or you're not shadow banned at all, but like uh, like for a teacher I'm doing on, uh, in, a, in a couple of days around purple washing between four organizers, including like myself, we had one functional Instagram, but all in different ways. So like one person could, uh, like for example, my account could add collaborators anymore but another person's account could add collaborators, but they can't caption the post. So they can't say anything about it. Then another person, uh, mm-hmm, yeah, then another person can't post at all. And then the fourth person was fully banned from, from Instagram. And so they've, uh, they're, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're doing a thing. And so some days I can't follow people, other days I can. Uh, most of the time I can't comment on things, but sometimes I can. And it just, it just fluctuates. And wow. They like wow. one functionality at a time. It's ridiculous. Wow, an additional layer of non functionality to social media. It's just like me on bad days. Yeah, my, my personal account has had some, some wonky shit going. Oh my God. Yeah. Anyway, 
Try your best to follow us. Yeah, see if it'll let you. And and try your best to follow Yafa. Um, And thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad we got connected with you. And thank you for all the incredible work you do. Um, yeah, thank it. you all for for having me here and for everything that you're all doing and yeah this uh this is this is what i was talking about earlier where it feels rejuvenating and so i feel it even really better does. after this yes yeah, yeah me too yeah feel that refreshment it's really nice yeah let's go get watermelons <laughs> that does sound good actually individual <laughs> you all get an individual watermelon mm-hmm.